Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner, too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund, because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. The Peter Schiff Show. Well, another Monday and another big down day for the U.S. stock market. It is turning out to be one hell of a quarter not all of the declines happening in October, but as I said earlier, it doesn't have to be in October for the market to crash. Now, today wasn't a Black Monday. I mean, certainly the percentage decline wasn't out of the ordinary, although the FANG stocks in particular, uh, really, uh, there was a big bite taken out of those stocks. And it wasn't just a bite that was taken out of the Apple, uh, which was some of the news that precipitated today's decline, uh, but a Big down day, nonetheless. The Dow Jones down just shy of 400 points, 395, 1.5%. On the lows, we were down better than 500 points. Uh, the Russell 2000 closed down just over 30 points. That's a two percentage point drop. But the big drop was the NASDAQ, just over 3%, down 219 points, pretty close to the lows of the day, maybe about 10 points or so off the lows. The Nasdaq is now down 12.5% so far this quarter, the fourth quarter, probably one of the worst quarters ever for the Nasdaq. I'd really have to check uh, the statistics on that. Obviously, we still have uh, about half the quarter left to go. I think there's a good chance that we can actually have a 20% decline this quarter, which would mean that Nasdaq would actually enter a bear market in a single quarter. On the year, though, we're still positive. We're up 1.8% approximately, so not quite 2%. Obviously, if we end up going down 20%, that's another 7.5% per year, uh, the NASDAQ will be in the red for the year, uh, wiping out what was a pretty big gain earlier in the year. You know, I think the only thing that may slow down the decline would be if the Fed skips the December rate hike, although even that uh, may not be enough. I mean, if the Fed doesn't hike in December, the markets might get worried uh, that you know the Fed knows something and that the economy is much weaker and therefore earnings will be much weaker. So to me, I think if uh, the market's going to get a stay of execution from the Fed, it's actually going to have to be a rate cut uh, in order to have some relief and maybe uh, there's some kind of rally, a bigger rally in the market. But, you know, I say stay of execution because I don't even think a rate uh, cut uh, is going to stop this market from dying. I think uh, death is inevitable of this bull market uh, and there's nothing the Fed's really going to do a short of massive quantitative easing, uh, which would potentially lift the market only because of inflation, only because the price of everything is going up. And so the price of stocks would go up too, just not as much. And, you know, I do think that if the Fed decides not to raise rates in December, right, and that decision is obviously going to be based on some data that they see that they're concerned about, whether it's in the real economy 
or in the stock market. And if the Fed decides not to raise rates in December, my personal feeling is that the next move on rates will be a cut. Because if the Fed doesn't hike in December because it's worried about the economy or the markets, well, I think by March of the following year, whatever it was worried about in December, the problem is going to get bigger. So if it's worried in December, it will be worried even more uh, in March. And so if it doesn't raise rates in December, then there's no way they're raising rates in March. It's just that the markets may not know that. And so the markets may continue to fall off expecting the Fed to raise rates unless the Fed actually flat out comes out and says, we're not raising rates anymore. But I don't know that they're actually going to say that. I think they're more likely just to cut rates than to say they're thinking about it. Uh, but if they, again, if they don't go, the markets, I think, are going to be worried and the markets will continue to fall because they're going to be worried about, you know, what bad thing is the Fed looking at that's causing them not to hike rates, even though the probability of a December rate hike has diminished somewhat in the last several weeks. The market still is anticipating the Fed to cut rates, and that's one of the reasons that the market is so weak. But there are plenty of other real issues, data points that are coming out both corporate news and news about the overall economy, in particular today, that I think weighed heavily on the markets. The first one being the home builder sentiment for November that came out at 10 a.m. So the markets were already trading uh, based on another piece of news, which I will get to uh, in a minute, but I want to just focus on the home building numbers. And so this is home builder sentiment. And last month, the number was at 68. Now, anything above 50 is supposedly okay. It still means they're optimistic. So 68 is pretty optimistic. And the consensus was for home builder sentiment to stay at 68. Instead, it plunged all the way down to 60. Huge drop. In fact, the range of forecasts went from a low of 66 to a high of 69. So there was actually somebody that thought home builder sentiment would go up. I mean, I don't know what that guy was smoking. You know, hopefully for his case, it wasn't uh, menthol cigarettes, but whatever he was smoking, uh, he has no idea what's going on in the real world. But that drop, from what I've read, that is bigger than any drop we had during any month of the last bust, you know, in 2008, the one that led to the 2008 financial crisis. So even though they're still optimistic at 60%, the rate at which that optimism has declined, we've never seen anything like that. And so obviously that scared the market, although why anybody is surprised by this is beyond me. Uh, but actually the home builders was one of the bright spots today. The home building stocks in general, we're up today. Now, to me, that looks like a short covering rally. You buy the rumor, sell the fact. I think the people who have been shorting the home builders are probably the only people who knew, uh, expected these type of numbers. And so they got a bad number. And so maybe the shorts covered. Maybe they decided to, you know, deploy their capital shorting some other stocks, particularly in light of the other bad news that came out before the opening bell. And that one was from Apple. 
And Apple basically said that they are going to be cutting their production because of, you know, lower sales, obviously. So they're cutting back on production, which obviously trickles down. That affects a lot of the companies that are counting on those orders from Apple to produce whatever Apple is buying to make its product. So the price of Apple uh, down by 4% on the day, pretty big day. But if you now look at the total drop, just over 20%, the way I, I measure it from the high to where we are today at the close, 20.4% drop in the price of Apple. And that means the way Wall Street scores it, Apple is now in a bear market. Of course, uh, not just Apple, Apple, uh, an honorary fang, not really a fang, but the fangs in general, man, the market took a bite out of those guys today. Facebook leading the market down, I think, down another 5.5% on the day. That brings the total decline for this bear market to 40%. And I think, again, I'm not 100% accurate because I haven't checked, but I think this is the biggest decline Facebook has had since becoming a public company. I don't think we've had a 40% drop. I remember initially after uh, the, the IPO didn't go as well as people thought, there was a drop. I don't think it was this big a drop. And I think since then, it's pretty much been straight up. I don't, don't even think there's been a correction. I'm not sure, but certainly not a bear market, not one down 40%. So that is the weakest of the fangs so far. In second place is Netflix. Uh, that was down actually 5.5% today, so pretty much neck and neck with Facebook. But uh, since its peak, Netflix is only down 36%, so not as bad as Facebook. Then a Amazon down 5%. Remember the trillion-dollar company? Amazon down 26%. Maybe people are a little worried about their Black Friday sales, which are going on all week. You know, By the way, I've already read articles today where the analysts are pre-blaming weak Black Friday sales on the cold weather. Now, clearly, that's not going to be a factor for Amazon. In fact, you would think that online shoppers would benefit. If it's too cold for people to shop outdoors, you know, driving to the mall, uh, then, uh, you know, you figure that they're going to do more of their shopping online. So that shouldn't necessarily hurt Amazon, but it should hurt the other retailers, which, of course, are hurting uh, retail stocks in general. Again, down again today, not as much as the FANG stocks, but nonetheless, these things are dropping pretty much uh, on a regular basis every day. Rounding out the FANGs uh, is Google. That is the strongest of the FANGs, down 3.8% today. And I'm just looking at it now. It's not quite in the bear market. It's the only one that's only in a correction. It's down 19.9%. Uh, so if it slips a little bit tomorrow, then Google will also be in a bear market. And so all of the FANG stocks will be in bear markets. Again, what are the odds uh, that the rest of the market is not going to follow the lead of the leaders who were leading the market up? They're clearly leading the market down. Uh, the financials, you know, in general, the financials weren't that bad today. There were plenty of them that were up, but not Goldman Sachs. Goldman Sachs down another 2%, a new 52-week low for uh, Goldman Sachs, uh, extending the bear market there. Uh, that stock is now down 28% since the peak. You know, I want to circle back to the sentiment numbers. Again, I, I wanted to mention this and forgot about uh, the home builder sentiment because this is just one of the first uh, sentiment indicators that's giving way because obviously home sales are imploding. So you might expect the builders to be a little bit nervous about this, even though they're still somewhat optimistic that optimism is fading fast. But remember, this whole 
rally is built on confidence, and the confidence is going to start going everywhere. I mean, first uh, you get the home builders are losing confidence, but then I think you're going to see business confidence, particularly small business confidence, which was at a record high. That's going to uh, start to diminish. Uh, then I think the big companies, corporations, you know, some of these guys are maybe already getting a little worried, the ones that are talking to Jim Cramer. Uh, so I think you're going to see the confidence there fall. Then, of course, consumers, right, their confidence is going to start to fall when their stock portfolios go down, when their home equity evaporates. And then when some of them start losing their jobs or their friends start losing their jobs and they're worried that they're next, then, of course, investors, right, eventually they're going to even lose confidence in the market when they see their their accounts going down. Uh, eventually, even the financial media. I mean, these guys who still are reluctant to call this a bear market, they're clinging to the hope that it's just a correction and that everything is great. Uh, you know, eventually they're going to give up their confidence. And then even the Federal Open Market Committee, right? Jerome Powell and all the cronies at the Fed. I mean, they are super confident. The most recent speech, everything is great. But even these guys are going to lose their confidence. I don't know about Trump. Uh, it's hard to say when Trump is going to uh, you know, wake up to reality or who he's going to blame it on. But, you know, I think of all the people who are eventually going to lose confidence in a false premise is going to be the Bitcoin hodlers. I mean, these guys, I think, are diehards. I think it's going to be really hard to shake their confidence. You know, even though the price of Bitcoin uh, plunged below 5000 today with no bottom anywhere in sight, uh, I don't think these guys are worried at all. I think they're excited. Uh, I think they think, again, this is just another dip to buy, that 20000 was just another uh, milestone on the road to $1 million, and so nothing to worry about. And they like to make fun of me uh, for you know being negative on Bitcoin all the way up. Um, but anyway, these guys are going to... Um, uh, hold on uh, to the end. But, you know, by the way, you go back and listen to my podcast. Yes, I called Bitcoin a bubble when it was, you know, 700, 800, 600. I forget exactly when. But I also said that the bubble could get a lot bigger. I mean, I never denied the fact that, you know, it could be a bubble. Now, I didn't realize it would get this big back then. But, you know, when it got to 5,000, I was on television saying, I think it can go to 20,000. I actually was right on that call. Now, I didn't tell people to go out and buy it. Just because I thought it could go to 20,000, I said that 5,000 was ridiculous. And so if it can go to 5,000, what's stopping it from going to 20,000, right? And so I wasn't always saying the top is in, but I've been saying the top is in for a long time because now, you know, there's a lot of reasons to believe that the top is in. I mean, look at the charts. I mean, in fact, on my uh, Twitter thing today, I put out something and I talked about the technicals because a lot of people are trying to say that the reason Bitcoin is going down uh, is because of, you know, the, the Bitcoin cash fork. This is all a bunch of nonsense, right? This is all uh, creating false hope. You know, the only fork that anybody should be talking about is the fork you can stick in Bitcoin because it's done. And those of you who are talking about, oh, you know, it's always rallied back in the past when it's fallen 75%. Yeah, when the market cap was tiny and there wasn't 200 other cryptocurrencies that it was competing with. You know, last time the market collapsed this much, I mean, it was probably better than 90% of the value. Now it's, you know, just over half the value because you got all these other cryptocurrencies competing. And by the way, I'll get into this a little bit later, I think, but Bitcoin was the um, the best performing of the cryptos. Although, yeah, you know, why don't I mention it now? So Bitcoin, as I'm speaking, is around 4,800. The lowest it got was just below 4,700. So, you know, we're down about, you know, 
13.5% or so on the day now, so it was down maybe 15%. But that is one of the best-performing cryptocurrencies uh, during the day. I mean, so many of them were down more. Now, I'm looking at this coinmarketcap.com, and for some reason, this always has the Bitcoin price 1 to 200 above where actually it is. So I guess this thing overstates it. But as I'm looking at it now, uh, we've got a combined market cap of uh, just under 162 million, uh, which is the lowest it's been in, in over a year. I mean, Bitcoin is at about 52.3% uh, dominance. But you look at some of these other coins, Ether down over 15%. We're below 150 in Ether, uh, 148. Market cap there is down to barely over 15 billion. In fact, Bitcoin's market cap is below 85 billion. Uh, so it is losing a lot of value. Some of the other darlings, EOS, down almost 12%, 404, almost with a three-handle. Look at Litecoin down over 14%. This thing is at 36. Um, you know, there's only 11 cryptocurrencies now that have market caps of over a billion. I mean, at one point, I think that was over 20. And one of those is Tether, which doesn't even really count because it's, you know, a stable coin to the dollar. So as far as, you know, actual uh, uh, cryptocurrencies, there's only 10 now uh, that are over a billion. The lowest one is Tron. It's got a market cap of $1 billion, $30 million. So it's down 17% today. Uh, so obviously it, it may not you know, drop out of that club by tomorrow or later today, and then we'll be down to 10. But there are some stocks that have really been clobbered. I mean, look at this one. Tezos is down 25, over 25% today. This is just one day. Some of you might not have heard of Tezos, but it's the 19th biggest market cap. Uh, and you know you don't mind Tezos, you bake these guys. Well, somebody left these things in the oven way too long because these things are collapsing, and I'm sure they're going to be crisp uh, by the time uh, this thing is down. But again, the, the crypto guys, their confidence, I think, I think they're going to hold on to it longer than everybody. I think even the Federal Reserve is going to give up the ghost before the, the Bitcoin hodlers uh, do that. Uh, but, you know, all the bubbles are breaking. It's not just the cryptos. You know, look at the pot stocks again. Canopy Growth, the big company, down 7% today. In one day, now down 44% so far this year. Tilray, another speculative guy, had a pretty good day on a relative basis. It just dropped 3%, but it's down 65% since its peak. Um, I don't know, like a month or two ago. I forget when that happened. But obviously, it's not just the cryptocurrencies that are going down, it's the uh, the crypto stocks. You know, there are a lot of stocks that got caught up in the crypto wave. One of the big ones was Square. And, uh, you know, they were adopters of uh, crypto. They were down 11% today. Big move in one day. They're down 38% so far from their peak. Overstock, uh, another, uh, you know, big, uh, you know, retailer. You know, they accept Bitcoin. They're into crypto down just 4.3% on the day, but Overstock is now down 80% since it peaked out. Now, of course, there's some other pure plays, right? Square and Overstock aren't pure plays. They have other businesses. They kind of just got involved in crypto. But if you look at some of the uh, companies that are pretty much all crypto, look at blockchain mining. Uh, that's based out of Tel Aviv. They, they bought BitFarms in uh in canada stock was down 4.4 percent today not too bad today but down 93 percent since its peak in the last year 93 percent hive blockchain technologies canadian company was a darling uh, miner of uh ether down five percent today down 95 percent from its peak price remember riot blockchain 
right? I mean, these guys uh, came out. I forget what they – I think they changed their name uh, and became Riot Blockchain. Down 15% today. That was the biggest decliner of the day among the crypto crowd. But that stock is down 96% from its peak. 96%. Last one on my list, Long Blockchain. Remember those guys? That was Long Island Ice Tea. They changed their name to Long Blockchain. Stock was down 9% today. It's now down over 98%. So if you put, what, uh, $1,000 into that stock at the peak, you got less than 20 bucks left. That's it. I mean, the stock has evaporated. This is what's going on. This is what happened when bubbles birth. You know, even uh, NVIDIA, which I talked about last week, down another 12% today. That stock is now down 50%. You know, I didn't mention it when I talked about it yesterday because I forgot, but I noticed uh, a few people commented about it, and so I remembered it, so I'm going to throw it in there today. But NVIDIA, in a way, you know, there's a little bit of a crypto angle to that stock because they sell these uh, CPUs that are used by the, the miners, the cryptocurrency miners, Bitcoins, and all the altcoins. They need these CPUs uh, in order to, uh, you know, to mine the coins. And so there is a lot of demand for these uh, CPUs in the fourth quarter of last year. And I think that uh, the guys over at NVIDIA kind of extrapolated this demand going forward. And I thought they kind of flooded the channel. They just expected the demand to continue. And, you know, there's a lot of people who wanted to buy these things, you know, gamers that wanted them. And, you know, they couldn't get them. They were in short supply. The prices were being bid up. And so the stock and NVIDIA was being bid up because they were making a lot of money. Um, you know, selling, uh, selling, you know, uh, these CPUs. Well, obviously, one of the reasons that they missed on earnings was because the crypto mining demand is not there anymore because the price of cryptos has fallen so much that in many parts of the world, you can no longer mine them profitably. Uh, and so obviously, there's not a lot of demand for new people to enter the mining space. So, you know, that the, those sales have evaporated. But, of course, that wasn't a big part of their overall earnings, but it was probably a big part of the growth. And a lot of investors and management ex expected that to continue uh, with all the hype around uh, cryptos. And obviously, that didn't happen. And that's one of the reasons the stock is down. But another aspect that nobody is discussing, which is very reminiscent of what happened uh, with the dot-com bubble, is after the dot-com bubble popped, right, and a lot of these companies, these tech companies went bankrupt, they had purchased a lot of equipment from uh, Lucent and Nortel and Cisco for their businesses. And when they went bankrupt, you know, they put this stuff up for sale. And so now the companies have to compete with themselves because a lot of the products that they sold we're now on the market, right? There, you know, they you could buy them on eBay used, and they were some of them might have been brand new. Maybe the companies went bankrupt before they even took the stuff out of the boxes, and so now the stuff's for sale, and so you're competing with your own merchandise, and so that makes it difficult to sell. And of course, what made it even worse for some of these vendors is they actually financed the purchases. They actually loaned the money to the dot-com companies to buy their equipment, and then when the dot-com companies went belly up, they couldn't repay the loans, so now they had to write down the earnings. That they, you know, they were pretending they were earning money as they were vendor financing, you know, these their, their customers, and then they had to write down those sales, which obviously hurt their stock prices. But then they still had to compete with their own merchandise. Now, I don't think any of the companies like Nvidia were that dumb this time. I don't think they loaned money to these crypto miners, right? I think the crypto miners were making money hand over fist mining cryptocurrency, and so they were able to go out and pay cash 
uh, for their mining equipment. And I think there were a lot of ICOs and there was a lot of money being thrown at the space. And so at least they weren't doing vendor financing. But where I see the similarities is when a lot of these miners go out of business, right, they're going to be selling these CPUs. You know, some of them barely knew, barely used rather, maybe some of them not even taken out of the box. So NVIDIA is going to be in competition because a lot of these miners, as they move on to something else, they've got all this, you know, CPUs that they don't need. And so they, you know, they can put them up on eBay for sale on the used market. So this is good news for the gamers who want to buy some, uh, some on the cheap. But it's not going to be good news for NVIDIA shareholders uh, as uh, earnings continue to erode. You know, one more last bit of irony on these uh, cryptocurrencies. You know, the cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin got started after the 2008 financial crisis. It was really kind of launched uh, as a result of that crisis and a kind of like a loss of confidence in, in, in fiat currencies and central banks because of all the bailouts and the bail-ins and the potential for hyperinflation. And so, uh, you know, out of that, uh, Bitcoin was born. That's where the idea was conceived. But then I think also early on and a lot of the people who bought it other than the hardcore, you know, libertarians who just, you know, again, like the idea I mentioned about it on my last podcast that this is, you know, a, a pipe dream. But one of the other great things about this dream that the libertarians had is not only would this be a great world where, you know, Bitcoin can take down the Fed and the evil central bankers, but all the libertarians who got in early were going to get rich. Right. All these young kids were going to be the millionaires and the billionaires of the future. And all those old fools like Warren Buffett, you know, and um, Jamie Dimon and Euro Rabini or James Rogers or Ron Paul or, you know, even Peter Schiff, you know, you know, whatever. There are a long list of people who were too stupid and too old to get it. See, we were going to go broke and the future millionaires and billionaires we're going to be the kids, right, the, the high school students or college dropouts living in their parents' basements who are hodling their Bitcoins, right? So in addition to this being this, you know, wet dream where, you know, you take down the banksters, you also get rich in the process. So that kind of sweetened the deal, right? But, so, but a lot of the people who started to buy it, you know, once it kind of came on the radar, uh, you know, when it moved from obscurity and it first moved up to 1,000 and then, you know, pulled back to 200, 300, and, you know, kind of was trading there, people started buying it on the idea that it was going to be a hedge, that it was an asset that was going to uh, be a safe haven. It was going to be digital gold, gold 2.0. It was going to be an asset that can protect you from another financial crisis, like the one that we had in 2008. It was going to be, uh, you know, an asset that would be contra to all the other financial assets. So instead of being in the stock market or the bond market or in banks, you could have an allocation to digital assets, cryptocurrencies. And a lot of people got in based on that premise and have been buying it based on that premise. And I think it's going to be ironic because we're very close to another crisis that will be bigger than the last crisis. We're not close to another great recession and markets are going to get killed. And just the way Bitcoin was born in the last financial crisis, I think it's going to die in the next financial crisis because it is going to fail to deliver on its core promise. Because when Bitcoin crashes more than all the other assets, when Bitcoin is down more than the stock market, 
the bond market, any of the other fiat currencies, right? When it gets killed and people who put their faith in Bitcoin lose even more money than people who lost their faith in the establishment and in the central banks, well, you know, it's out, you lived its usefulness. What is the purpose of Bitcoin? Particularly if I'm right about gold, because if gold ends up rising and it's the only asset that rises when everything else is falling, well then, you know, gold wins its battle with Bitcoin. Gold is the last safe haven standing and that removes one more barrier from gold. You know, by the way, you know, when you talk about confidence, you know, who's going to lose their confidence next? I think it's gold investors that lost their confidence first. They lost their confidence a long time ago, especially gold stock market investors. When you had these stocks, many of them making 52-week lows or multi-year lows this week. So, one of the reasons that I am very confident that the gold bear market is over and that we're in a bull market is because everybody has already thrown in the towel and lost so much confidence. The stock market, that hasn't happened yet, right? The bond market hasn't probably happened yet. Uh, the cryptocurrency market, not even close to happening. Uh, so the markets where people are still very confident are the ones that are ripe to decline. And I think one where you have maximum pessimism, like you did in the gold market and the gold stock market, those markets are washed out. And so we're early in a bull market uh, when it comes to gold and gold stocks. And we're early in the bear market in, in stocks. And when it comes, obviously, to cryptocurrencies, we're not early in the bear market because the bear market has been going on for a year. But I think in the scheme of things, we're still early. I mean, we had a bull market that lasted for about nine years. Uh, and now we're in the bear market. I don't know how many years that's going to last, uh, but um, it's probably not going to be uh, nine, because it's not going to take uh, you know that many years for Bitcoin to really bottom out. The question is, is it going to zero out, or will it still maintain some nominal price for punters uh, to speculate? One of the biggest Bitcoin touters is this guy Tom Lee, Tommy Lee, and I, I see him almost all the time on CNBC. But he's on Fox Business too. He makes the rounds, and you know this guy reduced his year-end price target, I think on Friday, on Bitcoin to 15,000, right? I think it used to be 25,000 or then he cut it to 20,000 and now he cut it to 15,000. It was 5,500 when he cut his year-end target to 15,000. That means, I mean, Bitcoin has to triple in the next month and a half to get to 15,000 and the thing has fallen through the floor. I mean, how does this guy have any credibility making a call like that based on what? What is your reason for your forecast? I mean, hope? I mean, that's it? I mean, Tommy, why do you think the price of Bitcoin is going to go to 15000 Well, I hope it's going to go there. Well, you can't base a forecast on hope. He's got to have some rational reason to think it's going to get there. When it's dropping through the floor, when it's got nothing going for it, remember, it's all about technicals. Don't think this is a fundamental story. Bitcoin has never been about the fundamentals. It doesn't have fundamentals. It's all about the technicals, and the technicals are lousy. And so based on what technical chart pattern could you say that your target for the end of the year is 15000 That shows the whole thing is a joke. He's just saying that. He's trying to convince people to buy. He's trying to convince people not to sell by hyping this stuff up. And these major networks give this guy a platform to basically come out and lie you know i mean can you imagine what they would do to me if they let me on cnbc and i said my price target for gold by the end of the year was triple the current price i said i think gold's going to 3500 by the end of the year you know they would laugh me out of the studio 
They, I mean, but they, they just listen to this guy and nod their heads like he actually knows what he's talking about. But, you know, in a way, he's kind of borrowing a page from Wall Street, the way analysts work, because, you know, they they always when they downgrade a stock, you know, let's say a stock is at 100 and it goes down to 80, you know, they'll they'll cut their price target from 150 to 130. Right. And that's all they do. And you're supposed to read between the lines and realize that's a sell signal. But, you know, if if they're saying it's going to go from 130 and it's currently at 80, wouldn't that be a buy signal? That's a huge increase. But what everybody just focuses on is the fact that they lowered their target. The targets themselves mean nothing. They're just numbers that they throw out there. And so the fact that they lower the number, even if the lower number is still 50% higher than the current price, that's still a sell, right? If you still read between the lines, you know that that means sell the stock because nobody actually believes the numbers. They just put them out there. And so that's exactly what this guy Tommy Lee is doing, except all these guys in love with cryptos on CNBC. Remember, I, I, I labeled that chat at the height of the Bitcoin mania, crypto news, Bitcoin, CNBC, because that's all they talked about. You know, and again, they still have their bug on there and they're, they're treating this like it's a real thing. And he comes out there and they give him all this kind of respect. And so oh, your forecast is 15,000 and no one says anything. They just, okay, 15,000. How is it going to triple to 15,000 by the end of this calendar year? Right. And the fact that the guy can say this means that he is simply a promoter, a touter. He is talking his own book. Now, I know people are going to say, oh, Peter Schiff, you're doing the same thing. No, I'm not. I'm talking what I believe. This guy can't possibly believe that Bitcoin's going to 15000 in the next six weeks. He's just saying that to keep people from selling so he can sell his own. This is massive pump and dump. You know, that's the whole thing about the uh, Bitcoin ETF, right? This ETF is all about pump and dump. Let's hype up this ETF. If we actually get them started, we can unload our Bitcoins to the ETF, right? And they'll be the bag holders. You know, that's one of the reasons that the hodlers are still holding on. They're holding on to hope that this ETF is coming. Right? Because they believe that there's a whole group of people out there, you know, these unsophisticated investors who are not computer savvy. They haven't figured out how to buy Bitcoin. And but if it's, you know, they can get an ETF, well, then they'll buy it. Right. Uh, all the old fogies that just don't get it. Right. You know, like, look, believe me, if high school kids could figure out how to buy it, a lot of these 30, 40, 50 year olds, if they really wanted to buy Bitcoin, they don't have to wait for the ETF. You know, they, they got they got smartphones. They could go and open up a Coinbase account. It's not rocket science. They could buy it now. They don't have to wait for the uh, the ETF. Then, of course, there's the idea that all these institutions are just dying to get into Bitcoin and they're going to plow their money into the ETFs. Look, if they were dying to get into it, they could buy the futures right now. There's barely any volume over there. There is no real institutional interest in it. I know Fidelity is out there. They said they're going to set up a platform. OK, they're going to have a party. Nobody's going to go to it. That's what's going to happen. But this is part of the slope of hope that this bear market is falling because people are just waiting for this uh, ETF to bail them out. Well, look, nobody is going to rush in to catch a falling knife. All this talk about forks, let's talk about knives because that's what Bitcoin is. And it's the falling kind that you don't want to catch because if you try to catch it, it's going to slice through your hand. But I want to talk also about Ray Dalio because I also talked about him in the podcast that I recorded on Friday. And he was in the news again today. He did an interview, which I watched for Bloomberg with uh, Barry Ritholtz. 
And he actually talked much more negatively. And as I said, when I when I spoke about him on Friday, I had a feeling that he was more negative than he was letting on. Well, he let a little bit of that out in this most recent interview. And one of the things he talked about was the dollar losing its status as the reserve currency, which is something that he thinks is possible or maybe even likely. And he said, if that happens, the dollar is going to lose 30% of its value. And I mean, that is really, really sugarcoating it. Because the dollar loses 30% of its value in a typical bear market. I mean, you go back and look at all the bear markets that there have been since 1971, and there have been plenty. And in fact, the first one that happened from 71 through 79, or about that point, that was probably the worst one. And that was the one that immediately followed the dollar being uh, delinked from gold. And as a result of that devaluation, where the dollar you know, stayed as the reserve currency, but lost its reserve backing of gold, the dollar lost 70% during that decline. So if the dollar loses its reserve status, which would be another seminal event similar to going off the gold standard, this is just not going to be another bear market where the dollar loses 30% of its value. I mean, that's nothing. I think if the dollar loses its role as the reserve currency, it will be at least as bad as it was in the 70s. And that means a 70% decline in the value of the U.S. dollar. That is enormous, right? Because you remember, or you don't remember, you can go learn about it if you're not old enough. And I've certainly been talking about it. We had massive inflation in the 1970s. And that was because the dollar was losing value. And because the dollar was losing value, you needed more dollars to buy stuff. Well, I think that we could lose more than 70% of its value because I think the U.S. economy is fundamentally in much worse shape than it was uh, in 1971. By far, we have much more debt than we had back then. The economy is way more screwed up uh, than it was back then. And of course, we were only able to stop the dollar's demise in 2008, one, by electing Ronald Reagan, and two, by having Paul Volcker jack interest rates up to 20%. Neither of these things are likely. Right. We're not going to get a Fed chairman that's going to have the balls to jack rates up to 20 percent. In fact, they can't even do it without imploding the entire economy. And we're nowhere close to electing Ronald Reagan. If anything, we're going to elect the antithesis of Ronald Reagan. As far as he was right, we're going to go even further left. So there's no end in sight to stop the dollar from falling. Uh, so it, it could fall. It could be like a bottomless pit. So 70%, you know, maybe that's a high end of the estimate. We can lose a lot more than that, which is why I am you know, so adamant about people holding on to their Euro-Pacific capital portfolios adding to their portfolios, you know, really hunkering down, getting out of the U.S. dollar. You, you have so much to lose by staying in the U.S. dollar and so much to gain by getting out, by investing in the overseas markets that I'm in, some of the emerging markets, gold, gold stocks. I think the amount of money that we're going to make is going to be you know, just incredible. I think it's going to be unprecedented as far as uh, returns on these type of assets measured in U.S. dollars. Uh, I think investors that stay in the U.S. stock market and bond market and dollar are going to get clobbered. I think they're going to lose a tremendous amount of purchasing power, but I think that's going to pale in comparison to the purchasing power that we're going to gain by betting against this bubble and by by staying in the right asset classes. So again, you know, if you've got an account with me, I mean, don't shut it. <laughs> if you can add to it, add to it. If you don't have an account, open one up. What are you waiting for? And again, if you don't own any gold, right, you should be buying some gold. 
uh, at Shift Gold. Set yourself up uh, with an account at uh, at goldmoney.com. And also, you know, check out again. I had Roy Sabag on. We did an interview, talked about Minet. The holidays are coming up. Buy yourself some gold jewelry. Buy your girlfriend, buy your wife some gold jewelry. So kill two birds with one stone. Get a Christmas present. Make your wife happy and also own some gold. Again, it's not the best way to invest in gold because the markups are higher than the markups on coins, but you, you can't wear your coin. You're not going to get a big smile on your wife's face uh, by, you know, you know, uh, putting a coin around her neck or around her finger or, you know, around her wrist. So there's some benefits to that. And of course, it saves you the money that you would have spent on jewelry anyway. That's not nearly as nice. Oh, by the way, too, another, another thing you could buy for presents, I know it's coming up, Black Friday, I signed about 80 copies of uh, both editions of How an Economy Grows and Why It Crashes and the Collector's Edition. So I had to buy them from the publisher, Wiley. So I bought them and I signed them all and I left them there in Connecticut. I signed them when I was there, there last time. And I actually got 100 of each, but there were some orders that we already had. But I think there's approximately 80 of each left. And so that's it. That's not a lot. So if you want to get a signed copy and get it delivered by the holidays, buy it now. Go to shiftbooks.com. I sell these things, you know, on my website as well. I mean, you could buy them on Amazon, but of course they won't have a signature. So if you want to get one with a signature, uh, then go to shiftbooks.com and, and you got to order quickly. And if we run out, I guess we'll tell you that we don't have them. I mean, you can always get them uh, without a signature uh, on Amazon, but if you want them signed, I just have those limited number of copies. Oh, by the way, I still have uh, some copies of the Kingdom of Malts. I am running out. I mean, I, I probably down on the last few hundred copies. I've actually sold probably a couple thousand of these things that I had that my dad had in a warehouse. They were brand new. And so they're almost gone. In fact, I probably could sell every one that I have this season, but unfortunately most of them I haven't signed. There's, there's probably about half the ones I have left. If that I was able to sign the last time I was in Connecticut. I'm not planning on being back there anytime soon. It's really cold. In fact, there's a cold front, right? That's they're trying to pre-blame uh, the week, uh, you know, holiday season on the weather. But it's beautiful here in Puerto Rico. So I plan on staying away from the Northeast. Uh, so the books that I've already signed are the ones that are going to be for sale. So you got to go to shiftbooks.com and order your copy. You know, when I first started selling the Kingdom of Malts, copies were going for about $200 new on on Amazon. I'm just looking at them right now. I mean, there is the cheapest one for sale is now 70 bucks. So, and that's a new one. I don't know if somebody's just buying it from me and reselling it on Amazon, but not a lot of people are doing that because I've got the only new copies as far as I know. The only other copies are going to be used. Mine were printed in 1999 and they've been in a box ever since. So they're old, but they're brand new. But I still see a guy selling uh, for 99. Here's one guy trying to get 100 bucks. Another guy at 118, 163. Here's a guy trying to sell at 170, 210 plus shipping, $227 plus $8 shipping. You charge it $227.69 for a little book, you think you could ship it for free. So that guy wants $227. Uh, here's a guy for $96, a little bit more reasonable, $153.20 uh, plus $399 shipping. So we're selling them for $25 with my autograph while supplies last. And again, these are great books to give uh, now because they explain inflation. 
Nobody really understands much about inflation. That's deliberately by the government. The government doesn't want anybody to know or understand inflation because inflation is the government's silent partner. So considering the fact that we're about to experience a lot of inflation, uh, it is a uh, very uh, good time for that book. I want to finish up this podcast, though, by talking about Michael Bloomberg, the former mayor of, uh, of New York City and a potential presidential candidate. Uh, in 2020, right? He wants to run against Donald Trump. He, you know, is a Democrat, right? Uh, he just donated $1.8 billion to Johns Hopkins, his alma mater. And he made the donation uh, so that the school will have it for a, you know, scholarships, particularly for minorities, uh, you know, African-Americans, uh, Hispanics, uh, the women, um, you know, all the usual suspects, right? The people who are the downtrodden, who are the victims, right? He wants to increase diversity at Johns Hopkins. So that money is going to go so that people can get scholarships and not have to borrow money and go into debt, right? Oh, very noble. And, you know, maybe he just wants to look good. Like, hey, you know, there's nothing like talking about how much you support education, right? If you're going to run for president, you want to be the education president. Uh, and, you know, to me, this is probably the worst thing Michael Bloomberg can do with his $1.8 billion. Look, I, you know, I am not, you know, upset that he's making a donation to charity. I mean, I'm all for charity. And, you know, Michael Bloomberg has made an incredible fortune just out of coming up with this Bloomberg terminal. He gets a lot of money from me. You know, I subscribe to a lot of these Bloomberg terminals. My, you know, portfolio managers all have them at Europe Pacific Asset Management. Uh, you know, I know at Europe Pacific Capital, we've got a few. The bankers have them, the analysts over there. So, you know, he gets a lot of money from me and, you know, obviously from a lot of other people. So the guy got rich. I mean, look, I wish I invented it. I would like to have all that income too. Uh, you know, I, I don't begrudge him that. He, he earned that money uh, and uh, he's entitled to spend it, invest it or give it away. I just wish he would give it away uh, to more needy causes. In fact, I think that he is contributing to the problem by donating money to these colleges so that they can give it to students to give it right back to themselves. Because remember, the money just goes back to Johns Hopkins. When you make a donation to a university to give it to students, the students just take the money and give it right back to the university. So you're giving the money to these rich universities. And what you're doing is you are enabling them to continue to rip off everybody else. I mean, what I want to do is starve the beast. I want to force universities to cut out the fat and to lower tuition so that people don't have to borrow as much money to get an education. That is the problem. But when you enable them by giving all this money, so now uh, Johns Hopkins could take that money and give it to some people so that they can afford to pay the over, you know, inflated tuition. But now they don't have any incentives to cut tuition. In fact, they're going to jack tuition up even higher for all the poor guys that don't get the scholarships, right? What about all those white males? Right. I mean, they're still going to go, but they're not going to get any of this money because they're not victims. Oh, yeah, they're going to be victims of higher tuitions because all these, you know, poor minorities are going to get all this cash from Bloomberg to, to keep tuition high. And now they're stuck with a bill and they don't have any scholarships uh, that they can qualify for. So they're going to have to borrow the money. Or, you know, and, and why do we need to give more money to these colleges? I mean, I get asked, you know, Berkeley hits me up all the time. I graduated from UC Berkeley. I've never given them a dime, yet they 
you know, they keep asking. I mean, they obviously, you know, they, they can't figure it out, right? I still get all this mail. In fact, whenever I get a letter from them, I know exactly. I don't even have to open it. I know they're trying to get me to, to contribute money. But look, I don't want to be part of the problem. I mean, I don't think we need to encourage more kids that probably shouldn't even go to Berkeley to go there and waste their time measuring in the psychology of sports. I mean, who cares? We have too many people in college as it is. The universities have too much money. And this just shows you Michael Bloomberg's approach. If Michael Bloomberg becomes president of the United States, what is he going to do? He's going to do the same thing with taxpayer money that he's doing with his own money, only on a bigger scale. I mean, you think $1.8 billion is something? Wait till you see how much he's going to donate to universities when he's using other people's money, when he's using taxpayer money, right? You don't show how much you care by writing a big check. I mean, to liberals, yeah, because that's how they think. They, 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 that's how, 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 uh, how thin-skinned they are. They, they can't see beneath the surface of a superficial, oh, let me just give this $1.8 billion uh, to education. It's not doing good. It is helping to facilitate the problem and perpetuate the problem. And a lot of people aren't going to get these grants. And because of these grants, they're going to end up paying more. What we need to do is get all the money, all the government money, out of education. So these guys actually are subject to real market forces. So they actually have to deliver a product that's worth the money, that the students have to be able to afford to buy the product without going deep into debt. I mean, there are plenty of products that we're able to buy without mortgaging our futures in order to buy it. Education should be one of them. We need entrepreneurs. You know, Michael Bloomberg should try to do for universities, you know, what him or other people have done for business. Come up with a better mousetrap. Come up with a way to educate people who should be educated for less money and keep people from going who should who'd be better off spending their time learning a trade learning how to do something useful that there's a lot of demand for instead of wasting time and other people's money or their own money or going into debt, taking out loans they're never going to repay. Uh, so, yeah, Michael Bloomberg gets to look good and feel good. And everybody's, oh, how generous, how great he's giving this money. He is contributing to a problem. He is an enabler. Look, there are a lot of good charities that he could actually give the money to, to, to needy people who actually could use the money or, you know, he could set up endowments to, you know, to fund entrepreneurs who have good ideas, who want to start businesses, who need capital, who have an idea that they could create a product that would improve people's lives. They can create jobs. I mean, why, why, there are a lot of other places, you know, in the, in the United States, you know, where he can uh, use his billions in, in a charitable way that would actually make a meaningful difference in the lives of people. This is not. This act is purely superficial to make Mayor Bloomberg look better in the eyes of liberals if, of course, he ends up uh, trying to get the Democratic nomination. But you got to look beneath the gesture to actual the consequences, right? Liberals are all about intentions. But what you need to be about is results and consequences. And that's something that the liberals don't understand. That unfortunately, the results and consequences of all the policies that have been pursued, not only by liberals, but by Republicans, right? Both Democrats and Republicans have been involved in inflating this gigantic debt bubble and all of the misallocations and malinvestments that have resulted uh, cryptocurrency simply being probably the, 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 the cherry on the, on the cake.
But all this stuff is going to collapse and all this stuff is going to happen and it's going to be the same old thing as we got in 2008. Nobody could have seen this coming. This is a once-in-a-lifetime event, even though it's like the third once-in-a-lifetime event in our lifetimes, right? But, oh, no one could have seen it. 100-year flood that we now have every you know decade or so. Uh, and they're going to come up with the same old, same old about too much capitalism. And that's where Trump really, uh, unfortunately, took the bait on that one by trumpeting the economy, by talking about how it's the greatest economy in the history of the world, by claiming credit, by talking about all the tax cuts, the biggest tax cut ever, all the deregulation, all this great stuff that he's supposedly done, and now saying that it's because of small government and conservatism and deregulation and tax cuts. Well, those are the things that collapse is going to be blamed on. That's exactly what the last collapse was blamed on, only this is a bigger collapse and the blame is going to be even harder, which is why the counteraction to the left is going to be bigger. We're going to go all in on socialism. And so you got to get all out of the dollar. You got to go all in on these foreign assets. You got to go all in uh, on gold and precious metals. You know, 2019 is shaping up, I think, to look like it could be a huge year uh, for gold and for foreign stocks and for emerging markets. A terrible year for the dollar, a terrible year for the U.S. stock market. 2020 could be even worse, delivering the White House and Congress to the Democrats, which means we're going to have four years of, of, of financial and economic hell. So you better be prepared and you get better get prepared right now. Thank you.